Welcome to Under the Oaks. I'm Lauren Thompson. And I'm Pastor Trent Sari. And we're coming to you from Pleasant Springs, Wisconsin, the tobacco farming capital of Wisconsin, I suppose. We are coming on behalf of Western Koshkonong Lutheran Church, a member congregation of the Evangelical Lutheran Synod. Our last episode, we ended by talking about the distinction between two important teachings found in the Bible, the law and the gospel. And we talked about how the law shows us our sin and how the gospel shows us our Savior. This time, we're going to start focusing in on the commandments. Everybody has probably heard the Ten Commandments. Uh, They probably have them memorized. But have you really thought about how all-encompassing the commandments really are? I think a lot of people imagine, well, I've broken a few of them, but, you know, I, I've never murdered somebody, therefore I'm not guilty of, you know, breaking that commandment. But as we go through these commandments, we'll see just how broad and all-encompassing they are and that they really do show us our sin. They show us not only have we broken some of them, but we've broken all of them. And if we were to summarize the Ten Commandments, uh, we talk about the two tables of the law. Jesus himself summarized them by saying in Matthew 22, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. So the first three commandments demand perfect love to God of every single one of us. They deal with our relationship with God. I think a lot of people, when you hear about two tables of the law, you assume that one table would have five and the other table would have five. But that's not quite how we break it down. We break it down in terms of our relationship with God, and that's covered in the first three, and our relationship with our neighbor, which is covered in the last seven. Now, depending on what your background is, your numbering of the commandments might be slightly different. And that's simply because the Bible itself doesn't give us a numbering system. You know, we know there are ten commandments, but it doesn't tell us commandment one, two, three, four in the scriptures. Some backgrounds of Christianity have numbered them differently over the years. Uh, We would say the main difference that you would notice would be like where we look at the ninth and 10th commandment both as dealing with coveting, and we would say the first commandment forbids uh, all idolatry. Some Christian groups would say, you know, the second commandment deals with making any graven images, and they combine the coveting, the two, nine and 10, dealing with coveting into one. And they split the first one, where we would say that uh, making a graven image would certainly be implied under idolatry. So it's not a a matter of, uh, you know, doctrinal disagreement, or I mean, uh, you know, heresy or something like that. Uh, It's just a different numbering system. So if when we speak about the fourth commandment or the fifth commandment or whatever, and the numbering seems strange to you, it might be for that reason. But that being said, uh, we will we'll take a look at the first three commandments today, which deal with our relationship with God, the first table of the law. So the first commandment says, you shall have no other gods. Quite literally, you shall have no other gods before my face. As we think about the meaning of that, it seems pretty simple, pretty straightforward. You might say, well, I don't have any idols in my house. I mean, uh, Lauren, do you have any idols sitting around in your house? I, no, I don't think so. So, you know, it seems as though, well, this is a pretty simple one, right? Not so fast. What does it mean to have a God? And it's not just simply something that we bow down before, right? Whatever we look to for our good in our life as our highest source of providence or or happiness or whatever it might be, 
that in essence can be a God to us. So as we go through some of the passages that deal with idolatry, we'll see that it's, it's a little bit more broad than just having a little carved image or something that you, you bow down to or pray to or something like that. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 42, we read, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carve idols. So certainly what is forbidden in the first commandment would be our, our traditional understanding of what a false god would be, would be you know something like an idol. We see that from time to time in the Old Testament scriptures and New Testament scriptures as well. But that's our most common understanding of what a false god is. In John chapter 5, Jesus said, All may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So all glory, all praise belongs to God alone and his Son whom he sent. If we dishonor the Son, we do not honor the Father. If we deny the Son, we do not have the Father either. And for that reason, uh, there are certain groups that we do not group in with Christian denominations. And I'm speaking here specifically of, say, the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormon Church. Even though they talk a lot about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they deny that Jesus is truly God, that he's, he's God from all eternity. And so in doing so, they really deny the Father. They would worship a false God, we would say. And also, the Jewish faith, you know, as much as we would say, oh, they have so much in common, they've got the Old Testament scriptures. Well, that's true, and you could even say the same thing of uh, Islam, I suppose, to a certain extent. But again, denying the Son, denying his divinity, denying that he is the promised Messiah, you have separated yourself from the worship of the true God as he's revealed himself in the scriptures. So we would say those religious groups are not to be grouped in with Christians because they do, they're not Trinitarian. In Ephesians 5, uh, St. Paul says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So, again, false worship, idolatry, is a very, very dangerous sin. It excludes one from the kingdom of Christ, from the kingdom of God. And that flies, obviously, contrary to the popular opinions of our, of our society that says, well, all roads will get you to the same place. All roads lead home eventually. You know, you worship God in your way, I worship him in my way, but we're all going to get to the same place. And Jesus obviously would completely throw that out the window. He'd say, no one comes to the Father except through me. And of course, the book of Acts would say there's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. So again, this is not our opinions. This is not our ideas. This is exactly what the scriptures teach. So if people have a problem with it, it's really, it's really God's word that they have a problem with. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, you cannot serve God and money. So notice there you have a competing God, if you will, that even money could be considered a God. You say, well, how, how could that be? Well, if your highest pursuit in life is to acquire material wealth, if that becomes the one thing that drives all of your actions and your focus, if that's what you look to for your source of happiness, 
that what's if that's what takes priority in your life over all else, it certainly has become your god. And uh, you know, some people say, well, I don't I don't worship money. I don't lay it out on a table and bow down to it. You know, therefore I I'm not guilty of worshiping money or having it as a false god. Well, certainly that's you know that might be true, but that doesn't that doesn't free you from this accusation, if you will, uh, that you could still be guilty of idolatry. On the flip side, you know, we could also talk about the the negative side. So we're talking about, you know, what you shouldn't do. There's also the positive side to the commandments too, is in what you should do. We could also say that in this regard, whatever you fear the most in your life could also be your God. So for instance, some people, you know, they live in constant anxiety over the fear of getting sick or dying. If that becomes, you know, your greatest fear, then it's controlling you. It controls how you act, how you operate, your decisions you make, and so on and so forth. And, you know, to be fair, we all have our own fears, but fear, uh, whatever you fear the most, could also be a form of idolatry. It is reflective of what it is that you pursue in life. And, it, you know, we, we've, we say the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that we should fear God above all else. Psalm 33, verse 8, let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. So this goes along with what I just described here. Uh, We should not fear love or trust in anything, whether that be money or pleasure or a leisure time or entertainment or intellectual academic endeavors or whatever it might be, and assume that those things can bring us happiness instead of God. Proverbs 8 Verse 13, the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. So it's not enough just to say, well, I'm for God. If you're for God, there's also a flip side to that coin, and that means you're against evil. You cannot love God and sin simultaneously. Uh, When God has brought us into his kingdom, we begin to look at sin differently. We see it as a real evil. You could say the same thing about truth and error. If you stand for truth, it means you are also against error. And a lot of people have a problem with that, especially in our society where we don't want to offend anyone. So you can have your truth and I can have my truth and we can all be right. It doesn't really matter. Nobody's really wrong as if truth were relative. But Truth is a moving target. Yeah. The reality is that you stand on one side or the other. You either stand with God or you stand with evil. You either stand with truth or you stand with falsehood, one or the other. There's, there's no in-between state. Genesis 39, verse 9. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So sin is certainly uh, wickedness. It is a sin against God. And therefore, we should with our whole heart cling to him and gladly do his will. Uh, obviously, that's easier said than done. You know, you can, you can coerce your children into obeying you, right? You can threaten them. You can say, well, if you don't clean up your room, I'm gonna, you're going to be grounded. And they might obey you, but they don't do it necessarily with a a free and willing heart. They do it under coercion and under the threat, and they might do it begrudgingly the whole time. So we talk about our whole heart clinging to the Lord. Uh, It means that we don't want to do against his will either. We don't want to sin against him. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 26 My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. 
So again, essentially saying a lot of what we just covered, that our whole heart should cling to him, uh, that we would want to do his will, that it's not just hearing his word and hearing what he wants us to do, but that we would also live our life according to it. And, of course, faith implies more than just academic or head knowledge. It involves a trust of the heart, that we put these things into practice, that we know we can lean on them, that this is the most important thing. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. So, from these verses, and there are many others that we could have cited here, we learn about what we should not do and about what we should do in the positive sense. So, we learn that we should not regard or worship any created thing as God. We should not worship a God who is not the triune God. We should not fear, love, or trust any person or thing, whether that be money, pleasure, reason, or so on, to bring us happiness instead of God and that would be the epitome of idolatry. On the other side, what we should do, according to the first commandment, is that we should fear God above all things. That is, we should give God our honor and our respect. We should fear his punishments, and we should avoid what displeases him. We should love God above all things. That is, we should, with our whole heart, cling to him and gladly do his will, gladly do his will. We should trust in God above all things, that is, we rely on him and his promises for salvation, and we bring all of our troubles and needs to him. Obviously, this is not an exhaustive study of the first commandment, but I think it, it, it's sufficient to show us that if we're being honest, uh, who amongst us can say honestly that they've kept all of those things perfectly in every aspect? No one. No one can. Uh, we, we are all guilty of idolatry. None of us have loved God with our whole heart, with our whole mind, with our whole strength. And uh, obviously, when we get to the second table of the law, we'll see that we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves either. Now, the second commandment uh, says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And again, uh, a simplistic reading of that, you say, well, I don't ever swear using that word. I, mean, I don't use God's name to swear. I know a lot of people who do, but I don't do that ah, I'm good, I kept the second commandment. But as we look at it further, we're going to see what it means to take God's name in vain. And it deals with a lot more than just cursing, you know, using swear words as we would say that. What is the meaning of the second commandment as we look at some Bible verses that pertain to it? In Exodus chapter 20, we read, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And, you know, we might ask, well, what is God's name? Well, God's name is not only every name by which he has made himself known, whether that be God or Lord or Jesus Christ, but also every statement in which he tells us about himself. So his name is representative of all that he is and does. And so we can misuse God's name or we can take it in vain in a whole variety of different ways. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word that they speak. So the words that we speak can uh, bring dishonor to God. They can devalue his name and his word and his, uh, how he's revealed himself to us in the scriptures. In Romans chapter 12, St. Paul says, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. 
So if this is to be our conduct towards our fellow human beings, don't you think that the same thing would be true toward God? And also, in the context of what we would call swearing, I would, I would say I'm going to refer to it as cursing for a good reason in a little bit. When we curse and you hear people say, well, God, you know, and then they say, well, damn that person or whoever it might be, uh, really, what are they asking for? Them to be sent to hell. Yeah, they're asking God to curse that person, to damn somebody. And obviously, um, you know, so, well, I don't think a lot of people think about it that seriously. It just becomes sort of filler language that you're used to saying. Everybody says it, so therefore right. it's, it's... It's it's the norm, so that's just what I say. It's, well, har- it's there's harmless. There's more to it than that, if you really think about it, which yeah. a lot of people don't. If you, if you take it literally, right. you're praying to God that he would damn somebody to hell. And obviously that is not God's will, and it would be inappropriate for us to even speak that way. So, like again... I don't think a lot of people probably, you know, use that kind of language with with that kind of intent in mind because they're just so used to saying these things. Mm-hmm. However, you know, we certainly want to be conscious of the words that we speak and this is wrong. It's an inappropriate use of calling upon God's name. Leviticus chapter 19. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. So here we're going to make the distinction between cursing and swearing. We've been talking about swearing using curse words. But here, when it talks about swearing by God's name, we're talking about taking an oath. So there's an inappropriate way that we use God's name in taking an oath. So where in our society, historically, have we used God's name in taking an oath? Courts, uh, yeah. taking an oath of office. An oath of office, whether maybe it was joining the military. Sure. But we used to think about that in terms of court proceedings. You know, you put your hand on the Bible and say, I swear to tell right. the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. Obviously, um, I think most, most uh, courtrooms have done away with that practice. I think wording is different now than it used to be. Yeah, they take God out of it. I'm pretty sure. I was on jury duty a few years back, and... I remember observing that and saying, huh, that's interesting. You, so you basically have to tell the truth, but it's not, you're not swearing by any sort of higher authority. You know, you're just scouts honor, so to speak. So swearing by God's name falsely, what would that imply? Um, you know, we're talking about a sinful oath here where we call on God, God's name needlessly, frivolously. Um, I remember as a kid, if you really wanted your friends to believe what you were saying, you'd say, I swear to God, I'm, I'm telling you the truth, I swear to God. Whether you actually were or you weren't or you're bending the truth or whatever it might have been. But saying it gave, gave it some weight. It gave it some weight, right? And, uh, but again, we need to be careful because we use God's name to promote truth, certainly, but we shouldn't do it frivolously like that. There's times where we're required by court of law or as our civic duty um, to, to swear an oath. And if it's to uphold the truth, that's an appropriate use of God's name, right? I mean, so God stands with truth. If, if that's what we're, what we're taking an oath, using God's name to proclaim the truth in court or whatever it might be, there's nothing necessarily inherently sinful or wrong with that. Uh, but we can misuse God's name and dishonor it by swearing sinful oaths in, in a variety of different ways. Again, not all swearing of an oath is sinful, in fact, as I said, we honor God's name when we use it to confirm our word 
or when we testify in court or take a public oath. Uh, we'll see what some of the negative sides might be in just a second. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. We can, we can use God's name to represent us in a general sense as Christians. We bear his name, right? We bear the name of Christ. As Christians, uh, we, we are unashamed to let other people know that we are God's children, uh, that he's placed his name upon us in baptism. We are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But when we live lives contrary to his will, uh, we are, in essence, being hypocrites, aren't we? Sure. And in that sense, we dishonor God's name. So we want to be careful of that. And the same thing could apply also in our oath-taking. We, we want to be very careful about where we do that. Other ways that we can misuse the name of our Lord, Leviticus chapter 19 says, Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out, and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. You might say, well, ah, I I'm, I think I'm pretty clear on this one. But yet today, the occult is more popular than ever. I mean, if you turn on your television, uh, you see uh, people constantly trying to communicate with the dead. You say, wait a second, what are you talking about? Well, most ghost hunting shows really revolve around the premise of trying to communicate with spirits, trying to communicate with the dead. And if you can't do it, uh, there are psychics out there who will claim to resurrect grandma and, you know, ask her questions for you or whoever it might be. And so this idea of trying to communicate with the spirit world is still alive and very popular. And unfortunately, a lot of unsuspecting Christians also fall prey to this because it is so popular and so prevalent in our culture. We see it on just about every channel we put on the television, all over the internet and so on and so forth. And so, um, you know, I know just a few years back, kids were playing this game, Charlie, Charlie, where they placed two pencils on a sheet of paper that had a little grid that said, yes, yes, no, no. And they would ask questions. And if one of the, the, the pencil would dip toward a yes or a no, that would be their answer. This was, in essence, kind of occult activity. Uh, when I was growing up, obviously, the rage was Ouija boards, and I'm pretty sure they're probably still popular today. We don't say that these things are all just fake or child's play or toys or games, even though they're sold in the game section of, you know, whatever store you go to, just about you can get these things. Next to Monopoly, I'm sure. Yeah. But there is certainly a real power at work. But don't assume it's neutral. Don't assume that it's what you think it is either. Obviously, God has forbidden, you know, trying to communicate or consult with the dead in other places in the scriptures. But especially, I know that there are some people who will, will use, uh, you know, try to do it in a religious sense. They'll try to, you know, san uh, sanitize that practice, so to speak, and use God's name to invoke the saints or whoever it might be. So we want to be very, very careful here that um, we don't use God's name to do something that he says is clearly wrong. And that would apply to sin in general, obviously, for Christians, but uh, here specifically in terms of seeking out mediums, necromancy. He's trying to communicate through uh, occult practices, which 
again, we may talk about more in just a second. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 23, God said, Behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare, declares the Lord. A kind of strange wording there. But the point is, is this. There were prophets in Jeremiah's day who were going around saying, Thus saith the Lord, when in fact the Lord did not saith, to use Old English. And the point there is that they were going around claiming to be representatives of the true God. And what they were saying was not God's word. They were using God's name to spread falsehood, to spread lies. And so this would apply to all false teaching and false teachers who, in the name of Christianity, proclaim things that God has not said. And this is why, you know, at the very beginning, we said it's very important that we don't go beyond what the scriptures teach. We don't want to say more than what the scriptures teach. And we don't want to subtract from it. We don't want to say less. Because either way, we are falsifying what God has clearly revealed as true, or we're adding to it. And especially as Christians who bear that name, you know, we are, in essence, misusing God's name to promote falsehood. Uh, This is not only hypocrisy, but dangerous. Uh, If a false teaching is poison to the soul, you might say, well, it's not that big of a deal, Um, but poison is always deadly. It may not kill you right away, but it will always kill you eventually. And so think about the countless teachers out there who all claim to come in the name of Christ or God, and yet when you examine their teachings, they're, they're very different, even contrary to one another. Well, not everybody can be right. You know, that's just common sense. So how do we discern error from falsehood? How do we know who's true and who's false? And how do we test the Spirit, so to speak? Obviously, we're talking about going to the Scriptures, as we've been doing in our episodes here. Um, but again, you know, somebody can, can quote a lot of Bible to you. That doesn't necessarily make it right. So, you know, we don't want to cherry-pick verses. We want to make sure that we let the Scriptures speak in total and shed light on any particular topic. That way we, we know we're not pulling something out of context or making it say something that it doesn't say. It's very common for people to come to the scriptures with a bias. They already have an idea about what they want to see there. Oh, I already know that. Yeah, or what they, what they already believe it says. And so they read it through that lens and they read things into the Bible that are not really there. And we've given some examples in past episodes. But this is all a very, very dangerous territory, very dangerous aspect of misusing God's name, and that's exactly what false teachers often do. The next one deals with hypocrisy. Matthew 15, verse 8 says, Jesus said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So, again, uh, proudly bearing Christ's name, calling ourselves Christians, even while living in the most vile and open sins. Um, you know, what, what does the outside world think about God and Christ? If this is what his believers are, if this is what they're about, uh, how can I believe any of it? Because obviously that person is telling me one thing and they're doing it something else. It, it undermines the whole ministry of the truth in a certain sense. This is why, you know, we always need to watch our conduct, not only for our own sake, because sin will always drag us away from God, it'll drive the Holy Spirit from us, But we are also God's ambassadors. We're his representatives in this world. And how we live either brings glory and honor to him, or it can do the opposite and bring uh, dishonor to him. So we certainly don't want to do that. 
through hypocritical living. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, Jesus said, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. So we talk about confessing the truth. Uh, you know, there's this real popular idea today that, um, you know, you don't have to confess anything. Your deeds will confess everything for you. And we don't deny that our deeds are a confession of what we believe often. But, you know, whether you, whether you want to or not, you confess something. Either you confess something to be true or something to be false. There's no in-between. And Christians have always confessed Christ. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And, of course, you know, the answer that's given by the disciples is, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Christians are more than happy to confess the truth about who God is, what he's done for us, what the scriptures teach, what he's revealed to us. Um, And that certainly applies to their deeds as well. However, this notion today that, well, we believe in deeds, not creeds, there's no such, there's no such animal. Right. Deeds and, deeds and creeds kind of go hand in hand. It's, they work together. There is no such Christian who does not confess something. Right. So as much as you'd like to say that sounds popular and it sounds non-offensive and it sounds helpful and all that stuff. That's loving. You're, you're standing by idly or silently as people are, are going to hell because they don't know the truth. So why wouldn't you want to share that truth? So acknowledging God before men, confessing his name, confessing what he's done, confessing his truth. That'd be a proper use of his name, right? Right. St. Paul would say in 1 Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. So a proper use of God's name is to call upon him in prayer and praise and thanksgiving. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. So again, we're just looking at Uh, some example verses that show us how broad the second commandment is. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And as we've seen from these verses and others that we should not, here's the, the negative part, here's what we should not do. We should not use any name of God carelessly or pointlessly. We should not curse by God's name. That is, uh, you swear profanity, I guess is what we'd be talking about there. We should not use God's name to wish evil upon others. We should not swear sinful oaths by God's name or needlessly use God's name to confirm the truth of what we say, especially if we know what we are speaking is not true or we are unsure of the truth. But again, not all swearing is necessarily sinful. We honor God's name when we use it to confirm our word when we testify in court or take a public oath, such as the one taken for public office or for the military. We should not make use of witchcraft. We should not invoke God's name in an attempt to do supernatural things, nor look for help from those who practice satanic arts or works such as witchcraft, fortune-telling, spiritualism, um, you know, psychics, and so on and so forth, attempting to speak with the dead. We should not lie by God's name. We should not teach or profess things that are not in the Bible and claim that they are words of God. People who do this are called false teachers, false prophets, and so on. We should not deceive by God's name. We should not cover sinful acts by a show of goodness. This is what we call hypocrisy. So those would be some of the negative sides of how we misuse God's name. Uh, On the other side, what should we do in the positive sense? We should uh, confess or profess our faith in him. 
in our prayers to him and in our worship of him. So again, a brief overview of the second commandment. Much more could be said about it. But again, if we're being honest, can we honestly say that we've kept the second commandment absolutely pure, without fault, all of our lives? No. And the answer, again, is no. Every single one of us is guilty of breaking the first commandment. Every single one of us is guilty of breaking the second commandment. And you can see that presents us with a problem. I mean, so it might sound like um, we're just getting beaten up over here when we look at the commandments. Well, that's kind of true. The commandments always accuse us. They show us our need for a Savior. So I think it's important as we go through the commandments and we, and we admit, yeah, well, I have not kept this perfectly, that we also keep in mind that there has been one who has kept these commandments perfectly, who stepped into our skin, so to speak, who took on human flesh on our behalf and who fulfilled all righteousness demanded of these commandments. And of course, that person is Jesus Christ. And because we have broken the commandments, we deserve God's wrath and punishment. But again, Christ has stepped in and he's taken that punishment upon himself when he, when he paid for our sins on the cross. So as, uh, as much as we're being beaten up over here, hopefully it's, it's leading us to look away from ourselves and look elsewhere, especially it leads us to the foot of the cross. And there we see our redemption. There we find our comfort, right? Don't lose sight of that as, we, as we're kind of using the magnifying glass and zeroing in on the specifics of the commandments. Don't ever lose sight of that bigger picture because that's, that's, that's very important. Otherwise, we can, uh, we can be led to some pretty dark places and into despair as we examine our own hearts and lives according to the commandments. The third commandment is, is kind of an interesting one. It says, you shall keep the day of rest holy. Uh, other translations might say, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? This one requires a little bit more explanation, I think. What do the scriptures teach of the Sabbath or Sunday or holy days in general? In Exodus chapter 20, verses 9 and 10, uh, we hear, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Now, again, if we go back to the days of creation, we know that God created everything in six 24-hour periods, as we talked about in previous episodes. But on the seventh day, it says he rested. And God sanctified that day, the Sabbath day, the day of rest. And he set a pattern in a certain sense for our lives as well. Uh, Why does the work week include a weekend? Why does it include a day off? Certainly, this, this is, comes from this idea the rhythm of life involves also not only time of work, but a time of rest. But this isn't just rest for rest's sake or leisure's sake. It involves a rest in the Lord. We're going to get more specifically to uh, the true Sabbath rest is found in Christ, who is our Sabbath rest, but that, that's a conversation for later. So, uh, again, uh, there's this rhythm built into our lives by design that makes sure that we have time set apart. Now, I suppose the sinful way to look at it is I I need some time off, right? Vacation, yeah. Uh, You know, God knows I work hard all week, so that's why he's given me this day to go do whatever I want. And you go take the boat out on the lake and do some fishing. Not not quite, but... uh, So, in the Old Testament, the Sabbath day was Saturday. And uh, the Jews counted days by sundown 
you know, so on Friday night, we would say when the sun goes down, that was the beginning of the Sabbath for Jews. And when the sun went down the next night, that was the beginning of Sunday for them. But so their Sabbath was very strict, and they were careful not to do any work. And they were careful that, that they tried to keep this commandment very strictly, and to the point where eventually uh, the Pharisees and scribes come along, and they, they want to make sure that they're not even close to breaking this law. So they make all sorts of other regulations and laws just so that they don't come close to breaking this one, including, you know, you could only walk so many steps. Uh, you couldn't untie an animal. So, just strange things. Well, above and beyond what, what this actually right. says. Uh, because that might be considered work, therefore we right. don't want to do that. And they were concerned merely with the externals. But as, as we've said, sin is always a problem of the heart. So you might be doing fine outwardly, but inwardly you're burning with, with sinful desires. So. That's something to keep in mind as well. But anyways, that, that Sabbath idea um, in the Old Testament does not carry over to the New Testament. And people, you know, say, well, wait a second, how, how can you say that? Um, don't, don't Christians keep a Sabbath day, so to speak? Isn't the Sunday the Sabbath day? And we'd say, no, not, not quite. So the reason we say this is because St. Paul himself says this in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. He says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. There he mentions the Sabbath. So let no one judge you in regard to the Sabbath. Why? Because these are all shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, Christ is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. Uh, So we're no longer bound by some regulation that says you must take Saturdays off. In fact, the the church has freedom in in terms of what day it wants to worship on. Uh, We'll talk about why it chose Sunday in a second, but can can the church worship on Monday? Yeah. Yeah. Could it worship on Tuesday? Sure. And we often have Wednesday services during Advent. There's certainly nothing wrong with that. Well, and Christians, in essence, worship every day of their lives. Sure, yeah, so absolutely. There, there's nothing saying that those things are wrong. So do we keep Sunday because it's some sort of ordinance or law that says you must worship on Sunday? And the answer is no. The reason we worship on Sunday is because it was the day of resurrection. It was the first day of the new creation, so to speak. So as Christians celebrated their Easter uh, freedom, the liberty that we have in Christ, uh, the forgiveness of sins, life and salvation, they did it on Sunday because it was the day of resurrection. They were living in the resurrection reality. They had new life. They were part of that new creation in Christ. And so they gladly uh, set apart Sunday rather than Saturday because, you know, this was a special day. It was, every Sunday was an Easter celebration in a certain sense. And in a certain sense, that carries over on to to this day. The reason why Christians worship on Sunday is because it is the day of resurrection. It is living in our Easter reality. We we have new life in Christ. His resurrection means that our sins are forgiven, uh, that we are new creations in him who have life, eternal life. And so uh, every Sunday becomes a little Easter celebration. And uh, certainly that's true, especially as we proclaim the good news of the gospel. And we see that pattern. It's not something developed by the church later on. It's already there right away in the book of Acts. 
in Acts 20, it says on the first day of the week, the first day being Sunday, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them. So Paul preached. The idea of breaking bread there is sort of an idiomatic expression that refers to the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And we'll see that becomes central to Sunday service as well. And I'm not going to say worship yet because there's a whole discussion we need to have on worship. I think worship, that idea in our minds, has this connotation about what we do for God. I love to worship him. So we see the direction is from us to him. But what we're going to see is the pattern of worship in the New Testament is really revolves around sitting around and gathering around the means by which God comes to us and therefore receiving his gifts where he gives them. And so we see this in Acts chapter 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Well, we do that in our services too, as we hear the scriptures read, as we hear them proclaimed and expounded to us. And the fellowship, it says, and to the breaking of bread, the celebration of the sacrament, and to the prayers. The prayers there probably referring to uh, sort of set liturgical prayers as they were practiced in the synagogues, but also would be carried on into the early church as well. It wasn't like they were just uh, just speaking nonsense or praying about whatever came to their minds. Certainly that, that could be done too. We're praying for all people according to their needs, but there, there's, a, there's sort of a formal aspect of this as well. So, in terms of the Sabbath day, in the Old Testament, God required his people to rest from all labor on the Sabbath, which would have been Saturday. But as we see, the Sabbath and other holy days commanded to Israel were abolished in the New Testament by God himself. There's no command in the New Testament to worship on a particular day. Instead, we set a a day of the week for public worship so that we can use God's word and sacraments with other Christians. In other words, so that we can gather around God's gifts where he gives them when he gives them. And so, in essence, this becomes defining about who we are, right? Sure. God's people want to gather around God's gifts where he gives them. I often hear people say, well, you know, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And I would say, well, in theory, that's true. I mean, there's times in history where Christians were forbid to go to church. They could still read their Bibles at home and so on. But you tell me, what kind of Christian says, I don't want to go where God gives his gifts? You know, if God says, I'm going to meet you down at, uh, we'll say, Western Kashkanong Lutheran Church on Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m., and by the way, I've got some great gifts to give you, the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation, you say, well, you know, God, uh, I'd like to be there, but I don't think that's important. In fact, uh, I've got some, uh, I, sc- I scheduled some time with my friends, we're going to go out on the boat instead. Right. You think that sounds pretty silly, doesn't it? I mean, that's, uh, yeah. And. Uh, but again, that's how, that's how ridiculous it is. Of course, Christians go to church. Christians want to gather where God gives his gifts. So we're not bound by any sort of legal sense as to what day that might be, but we would, we would do it gladly, frequently, whenever we have the opportunity. So uh, whether it's twice a week, three times a week, or every day, whatever it might be, uh, it, we, we take advantage of those opportunities to sit at Christ's feet and to receive his gifts. We know that the early Christians worshipped on the first day of the week, Sunday, because Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. So, as we, as we think about then, well, what, is, what does the third commandment mean for us today? How do we keep a day of rest holy? Well, what makes anything holy? Uh, everything is sanctified by the word of God and prayer, the New Testament tells us. 
sanctify means to make holy. So a day must be made holy also by the word of God and prayer. We're starting to come closer to an understanding of what the third commandment now means. So, you know, in in that regard, let's take a look at some other passages. In John's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 47, Jesus said, Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So, as Christians, again, we want to hear God where he speaks to us. And he speaks to us in the scriptures. He speaks to us as those scriptures are explained and expounded to us in the setting of a church service, in Bible study, in our devotional readings, and so on and so forth. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus said, The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Now, a little bit of context to this verse. Jesus is sending out preachers. And as he sends them out, they are to proclaim his message. And he tells them this. He says, The one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Now, this has some pretty big implications for how we view church and uh, the preaching of God's word. Uh, Notice, as they went out, they weren't preaching and, you know, just their own opinions. They were preaching God's word. But the people who were hearing it were to hear it as if Jesus himself is speaking to them. That's what he says. The one who hears you hears me. Wow, that's pretty important. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. You're right. And furthermore, the one who rejects you rejects me. So when we say, well, I'm a Christian, but I, I don't go to church. I, I, I think that all organized religion is, is so corrupted. And, and, uh, and even if there was a preacher who was proclaiming the truth, I don't need him. In saying such a thing, we would really be rejecting Christ who comes to us through that, that word of truth proclaimed properly. Now, I'm not saying that all false teachers are somehow God's mouthpiece. That's not true, as we already talked about. But when God's word is proclaimed in its truth and purity, and we decide, oh, that's not that important to me. When we reject to hearing God's word preached, Jesus says they're rejecting me. And that's, again, that's a pretty big deal. It's serious business. And furthermore, he takes it one step further. He says, he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So think of the countless people who say, well, uh, yeah, I'm a believer. I don't, I don't go to church. I, I can be a Christian. I don't have to go to church. Uh Again, look at what Jesus himself says in rejecting the importance of his word. And again, it's not to say that there's times in history where, you know, Christians have been sustained by reading their Bible. They haven't had the opportunity to go to church or whatever it might be. That's different. You know, the attitude there is not one of rejecting the proclamation of of God's word. But there, in in our context where, you know, it's pretty easy for somebody to go to church, think of all the, the frivolous reasons people have for staying away. It's too early. It's too late. Uh, I don't like the people there. Um, I got other things going on. I work hard all week. I need that time off or whatever it might be. Uh, you know, y- you hear countless excuses and, and they, they vary from quite extreme to, you know. Uh, pretty weak. Yeah, pretty weak. Psalm 120. And that again, that's not to say that there are people who legitimately cannot make it to church. Again, we, we call them shut-ins or homebound people. Uh, because of physical limitations or disabilities, or uh, there could be other reasons. I mean, we're not talking about people who who have the desire to go to church but cannot. That's certainly— We go to those people. Right. 
and the church has a, a yeah a responsibility to go to them and to visit with them and and to minister to them as well. And you know why would that be so important? Why would the hearing of God's word be so important? Obviously, God's word is living and active. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. As Psalm 122 says, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. So God's word enlightens us. It gives us understanding. And that's something that we desperately need in this life. Um, But uh, again, it, it gives us light by leading us to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. You know, don't lose sight of that. It's not just a bunch of moral precepts or, you know, general guidelines for wise living or something like that. Psalm 26, verse 8. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Uh, We would say where God's word is proclaimed and his sacraments are administered, Christ is truly present. God himself is present, not in some sort of nice sentimental way. Oh, you know, as we, we hear this, it's like he's with us. No, we believe that he is truly and really truly present with us, just as his words declare. And, and we can say that about the proclamation of his word. Uh, you know, St. Paul would say, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Richly. Not sparingly, richly. And it's the word of Christ that dwells in us because it's his word that is life-giving. It brings with it Christ himself and all of the treasures of salvation that he's won for us. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So there the scriptures themselves tell us that we should not neglect meeting together, as is the habit of, I would say, many, but we gather together to encourage one another by using the gospel. And remember that the other picture that the New Testament gives us of the church is that it's the body of Christ, and each person is, makes up that body. We're all members of it. And just like your body has an eyes and ears, fingers, nose, toes, whatever it might be, each one of those members serves an important function for the whole. Each part is dependent upon the other parts doing their part, you know, for the good of the whole. And that's an, another important aspect as we think about the importance of uh, community, of fellowship with fellow believers. Uh, it's not only because um, we, we get to hear God's word, which is true, but we're also encouraged by one another. We need other people. They're part of the body. We need what they do, and they need us. So when we neglect gathering together, we're not only neglecting ourselves, but we're neglecting others. We're depriving them of the gifts that maybe God has given to us as well. So the Bible doesn't say you have to go to church to be a Christian. Well, I would, I would argue that the verse I just read you from Hebrews 10 says just the opposite. N- now, again, it'd be easy to look at this merely from a law standpoint. You know, you, you have to do this or else. And, you know, that's, that's not really the point here. The emphasis is the benefits, the gifts that God gives. It's gospel motivation. Why would we not want to go? We'd be right. crazy. Exactly. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So, you know, this, this obviously would come up also in the fourth commandment where we talk about honoring those that God has placed over us. But in, in the church, 
the job of a pastor, I would say, in some ways, is similar to a, uh, that of a surgeon in the secular realm. Uh, you're given the scalpel of God's Word, and if you don't know what you're doing with it, you can create a whole lot of harm. And yet, if you use it properly, it's, it's life-saving, right? And so, obviously, you know, we want to make sure that our, our pastors are well-trained and, and apt at being able to divide the word of truth and to apply it. But as hearers, oh, we should also understand that and respect that. I mean, I know that generations ago, even when I was growing up, I could never have imagined talking back to my pastor or, you know, calling him a name or, you know, just being mean to him or something like that. Because in my mind, you know, this was God's representative on earth. And yeah, had respect. Respect and reverence, you know, wow, you know. Um, and not just because of who they are personally, but for the office. I mean, this is something that God himself has established. Therefore, it's important. It should be important to me as a Christian. But I think that that idea has kind of gone out the door in, in much of our society today, even within Christian circles. I think the tendency is to see pastors as hirelings, as, you know, you're my employee, you're going to do what I say, you know. Well, a lot of things, too, have turned internally, so people are looking toward themselves to do it instead yeah. of looking for somebody else to show yeah. them. who's this guy think he is? Right. You know, I, I, can, I can read the Bible for myself. I don't need somebody to talk to me. Right. Galatians 6, 6, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. And, um, you know, th this sounds probably self-serving coming from a pastor to talk about this, but uh, as Christians, we have a responsibility to support the gospel ministry in our midst. And, it, and that means more than just paying the pastor's salary. I mean, it, it means also an interest and support for mission work, for outreach, for, for taking care of our own people who are, who are sick or suffering or homebound, or also for those reaching out to those in need in our communities and well too. But we, we have this obligation or privilege, I should say, because it, again, it's not law motivation. This is, our, this is our great privilege as Christians that we can support this. But because we understand how important the gospel ministry is, uh, we, we want to support that ministry in our midst, in our congregations, and even in our synod as well. Remember, you know, as a congregation, I may not be able to, or we may not be able to send people overseas to India and, uh, you know, Africa or wherever it might be to do mission work because we don't have the funds or the resources to do it. But through our synod, where we work together with other congregations who confess the same truth as us, uh, we are able to do those kind of things where we can support uh, the proclamation of the gospel all over the world. And in fact, we're doing those things. We can also support the training of future church workers and pastors through our college system at Bethany Lutheran College in the ELS and Bethany Lutheran Seminary. Jesus himself would say in Mark chapter 16, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. So part of our obligation in terms of, of the gospel is that we want to make sure that this gospel goes out to all people. So as we see in the third commandment, it's, it's maybe not exactly what we expected. It is much broader than we thought. But as we, as we looked at the Sabbath of the Old Testament and we see that that's done away with, we certainly have an obligation to make sure that God's word is used regularly for our benefit and for the benefit of others and to setting aside time in our week for that. Uh, this goes back to the first commandment, really. I suppose a, a lot of, you could say, how do you show that God is truly your God and that you don't have a false God, well, obviously our priorities would say, I, I want to, you know, I, I can do a lot of other things, but I will be in church on Sunday morning. 
I'm going to make sure, you know, I've got a lot of things I would like to buy, but my money is first going to go to support church and whatever is left over I will spend on other things. But that's the first priority. So obviously, you know, our actions can reflect that as well. But in general, as we, as we think about what it means to keep the day of rest holy, we see that we should not, here's the negative side, we should not treat God's word and sacraments as something unimportant by neglecting them or by not using them properly. Uh, the positive side, we should hold preaching and the word of God sacred. Uh, I think that's a, another term that's lost in our, in our culture. We don't, we, we've lost the idea of the sacred. Well, hearing God's word, receiving Christ's gifts, that's a sacred thing. That's something extra special. It's not like the things that go on in the rest of our week. We should gladly hear, learn, and meditate upon it, both through private and family devotion and in public worship, as we assemble with like-minded believers around word and sacrament in public worship. We should honor and support the ministers of the word, We should support the missions of Christ's church of preaching the gospel throughout the world and when given the opportunity in our own personal lives to speak of the hope that we have in Christ our Savior. So again, this is certainly not exhaustive of the third commandment, but it does give us enough to see how broad and all-encompassing this commandment is. And just like the other two that we discussed today, as we examine our own hearts and our own lives in regard to the third commandment, uh, have we kept this commandment perfectly? Have we always placed God's word and, you know, hearing of his word above all things in our lives? Or have we been guilty of putting other things first? Guilty. Guilty, yeah. I mean, I don't think there's anybody who can say they've kept the third commandment perfectly. Again, other than Jesus Christ. And again, I always want to come back to that. Uh, yes, the the law beats us up. It throws its accusations on us. It condemns us but somebody else steps in and he takes the accusations upon himself. By his stripes, we're healed. So we always want to remember the gospel, right? As I said, we're zeroing in on the specifics of these these commandments, but don't lose sight of that most important thing. In our next episode, we'll begin to take a look at some of the commandments on the second table of the law, which deals with our relationship with our neighbor. We'll do that in a similar way as we've done today. And uh, we hope that you'll join us again in the future. This is Pastor Trent Sari. And I'm Lauren Thompson. Join us next time on Under the Oaks.